This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the Jeff Merrick Show. Uh, if you just joined us, Elliot Freeman breaking it on this program. David Camp, four years, $2.4 million per season to stay with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And also, um, to whoever was listening and buzzed Elliot and let him know, thank you very much for that. Um, Ryan O'Reilly, it looks like we may have a... a we may have an idea of what his future looks like, whether it's in Toronto or not, um, in the next little bit. So that was a nice little bit of news. Yesterday, the big bit of news was Pierre-Luc Dubois. The saga is over. He heads to L.A. to join the Kings. Uh, joining us on the line, our pal, my pal, Ken Weeb from Sportsnet joining us. Now, Kenny, how are you today? Matty, uh, doing tremendous. Thanks for asking. Uh, I promise not to uh, to be interrupted by people to say hello to uh, during the next 25 minutes. Uh, I just wish he told me who it was. That was what I was most interested in. And they said it's none of my business. I was hurt by that, Elliot. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, just just joking. We know it's a, it's a busy time for our, our friends in Nashville. But uh, yeah, great, great, great to be having some news to discuss. Uh, uh, chained to my computer for most of the last uh, three days since Saturday, and glad to see some resolution to that deal. That's for sure. Well, I was gonna say if you're if you like busy, you're covering the right team right now because <laughs> I mean the Kevin Shelvedale has kind of been backed into a corner here a little bit. Um, you know the Pierre Luc Dubois thing. He he made it clear that he didn't want to stay there, and that's fine because you could still get assets for him. And and I. I mean, we'll get your take on this. I thought that they did really well in that deal. And I'm a big fan of Pierre-Luc Dubois, but what was your initial reaction when you saw what the return was? Yeah, I mean, it's a substantial return. There's no doubt about that. Uh, three very capable pieces. Uh, you know, one probably guaranteed top six player in Gabe Bellardi, who, you know, whether it's at wing or center, he's going to be a guy that could blossom into a 30-goal guy coming off his career high of 23 as he stayed healthy. Uh, you know, Kapari is a guy I've heard a lot of great things about, great speed. He hasn't popped yet offensively for a guy who was a first-round draft pick, but uh, brings a lot of qualities to the table, and him too. He can play center or wing. Uh, let's say middle six for now, uh, you know, played more of a four-fine role in L.A. And then you have Alex Iafalo, who a uh, very solid kind of playoff performer, a guy that's, uh, you know, coming off a great season, plays really hard, a uh, high-character guy. And then you have a second-round pick uh, that originally belonged to Montreal that, you know, depending on how things go there this year, could be somewhere in the 35 to 50 range, let's say, if we're using a broad stroke. Uh, you know, for a guy who, you know, basically the Jets had very limited leverage in this situation. Now it obviously helped that Dubois was willing to go somewhere other than just Montreal. But uh, I think it's an important return for the Winnipeg Jets uh, because we know they don't want to rebuild. They want to retool on the fly and try to be competitive and uh, I think this trade is the first step in trying to do that. Now, there's still a lot left on the plate, but uh, I would say it would have been hard for Kevin Shevelbeoff to extract a larger return, even though obviously right now uh, the LA Kings are the team that is getting the best player in the deal, the guy who is most advanced uh, in terms of his, uh, you know, um, you know, abilities and, you know, career path. But, and I also love the deal for the Kings because they're, you know, as you've mentioned all weeks, down the middle. Uh, I think the uh, Vegas Golden Knights would still have an argument in terms of who has the deepest center group, but uh, LA is certainly right up there. Yeah, they are. And and I mean, the other, the other benefit for the Winnipeg Jets was that, let's face it, the LA Kings, they were so pressed up against the cap and to make it work, like Elliot said in the previous segment, they had to move out good players. And not that you wouldn't give up good players for Pierre-Luc Dubois, but they were almost negotiating against themselves at this point because I never thought that Montreal was going to be a destination because I don't see a situation where the Habs were paying Pierre-Luc Dubois more than Nick Suzuki. So that to me right there was like, well, he's, he's probably not going there. Um, listen, we know the Kings are getting a good player. The, the Jets got a really nice return, but now the focus shifts to what's next. And I mean, some people will point to Connor Hellebuck, but the more pressing issue right now is Blake Wheeler. And it does really feel like a buyout is what's going to be what ends up happening here. Um, how, how do you look at, at the bio? Because I, I don't know, I don't know what exactly, it, how palatable it is to buy him out. I know the preference would probably be to trade, but um, do you think we are heading towards the inevitable here? And that is that the Winnipeg Jets are going to buy him out and he's going to become a free agent and, and go somewhere on the cheap. 
Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting, Maddie. And just to Elliot's point there, the salary this year is 8.25. Last year, there was a lower salary in terms of the actual hard cash. I think it was 6.25. But uh, in the fifth and final year of that deal that he signed, it is the full pop there. So it would cost the team 4.125 if the Jets were willing to eat half. And, you know, this if it does go the buyout route, it would cost the Jets 5.5 over two years, I guess, spread over two years and count 2.75 million against the cap. So, um, yeah, is it, here's, here's the other possibility that has been floated, uh, and that is maybe a team that wants to get to the floor might be interested in taking Wheeler at, say, 50%, and then that team buys him out now. It doesn't solve their problem, but it would be a way to get cash onto the docket without having the player there. But that would cost the Jets an asset. So is it is it worth it to spend an asset to get a million and a half in savings, let's just say, as, as a round number? I mean, to me, I don't think the Jets are in a position where they want to be moving an asset in order to, to get that done. And although it's a tough you know, tough pill to swallow to pay someone that has been such a big part of the organization for the past 12 seasons, 5.5 million not to play and to sign somewhere else and, you know, potentially end up in the division uh, with his hometown team on a sweetheart deal. Uh, I mean, that's probably a scenario that the Jets wouldn't be overly fond of. Uh, Having said that, uh, I think it's just, you know, the two sides explored a, a, a divorce last summer uh, it didn't come to fruition. I think it's probably just time for uh, both parties to move on. Blake has given uh, everything that he has to the organization, but uh, it's just time for both sides to kind of spread their wings and kind of welcome in a new chapter uh, in terms of where things are going. I think that's that's probably where I think we're at, and I would think we're going to have some clarity there either today or tomorrow. I know the deadline is Friday on the buyout side, but I would think we're going to get some clarity on that really soon here. I wish somebody would pay me $5.5 million to go away. Like, uh, that is that is the dream, right? Kenny's like, here, here's $5.5 million. Don't work. We're good. We don't need well, you. I'd here. be happy to work. Uh, I'd be happy to work. Uh, but we'd also take the uh, that, that amount. Yeah. Well, even if it was spread over two years, I think we'd find a way to make that palatable. Yeah, I, I would. I've been doing it. I've been doing a pretty good job of it. I already told my wife, I said, if we ever won the lottery, I wouldn't work. She said, well, what would you do? I said, anything but work. Like, why? Like, I mean, I could do this job because this is fun. Like physical yeah. labor, anything like that? No, no, we don't get along. Physical labor and I. Um, okay, the uh, the other move that that we think is going to happen uh, eventually is Connor Hellebuck, and I've been trying to play out different scenarios for what the return is and what they're looking for. But when you look at what they could be looking for in a potential return, does a a goaltender have to come back? Like, I know the market is not great in terms of free agents. It's just okay. If you want to stay competitive, well, you need a goalie. And they don't. And David Riddich isn't under contract, and they've got to figure out that situation as well. But if it were a team like, let's say, New Jersey, they, they would be sending a goalie back. But there's other teams that would be reluctant to move any sort of goaltending to get Connor Hellebuck. Is that a big priority for the Jets in any deal for the goaltender? Well, I mean, the, the bigger issue for the Jets, Maddie, is that they don't have an incumbent that's ready. Uh, Riddick probably is not going to be back. Uh, their guys with the Manitoba Moose are not ready uh, for graduation. Uh, none of their goalies in their system are, are knocking on the door here, even though they had a great season from Dom DiVicentis uh, in the Ontario Hockey League, where he was goalie of the year. He's still probably two to three years away. So. The Devils were the team, a team involved, which we've, you know, heard some interest from them. For sure, uh, Vanacek or Schmid would would probably be coming back. But, you know, can you know? Let's go in the hypotheticals. The next person we talk about is Shifley. I mean, if Shifley is going to the Boston Bruins, hypothetically, you can get a goalie back either in Swayman or Allmark, conceivably, if that kind of a deal is made, right? But so it doesn't have to distinctly be a one-for-one deal, but. Uh, they certainly, unless unless they feel confident about going after someone like Jonas Corpusalo, who sounds like he won't be back with the LA Kings, you know, you would be a little bit nervous uh, without bringing. Let's just put it this way: whether it's in a trade or in you know on July first, if the Jets didn't have a goalie coming back in either prospective deal, or they're very confident they can sign someone in free agency, then I would think the chances are much higher that Connor Hellebuck starts the season and and they sort of see where things go from there. Now. I can change with one phone call, but 
uh, it's it's a very tenuous position to not have uh, either goalie under you know it, they would be in a tough spot without having someone else under contract so uh, that's why I think it's complicated uh, I know the saturation theory is out there and it is factual but the Jets also have probably well, not probably they have the best goalie available on the market so I don't think that necessarily uh, you know lessens the return I think the people that are wanting that out there are people who want don't want to pay as high of a return yeah, the market is super interesting. I mean, there there are a lot of really good goalies that are out there. And, you know, there's Hellebuck, there's potentially Allmark, and then you've got, you know, Anderson and Ranta and, and Varlamov if you want somebody to play, you know, 30 games in your tandem. Like, there are a lot of... Int- John Gibson's another one that is another intriguing option. So I'd be curious to see how this all plays out. Uh, Ken Weeb from Sportsnet joining Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick Show. Uh, you mentioned Mark Shifley in there, and... I wonder, I, I, I would assume there's a lot of interest in Mark Shifley around the league. You mentioned the Boston Bruins. There's lots of teams that are looking for centers. Um, is he the guy, like if you had to, if you had to put a, a ranking on it, so Pierre-Luc Dubois, let's say it was one that was most expected to leave. After that, does he fall a lot further down the list? Like of the four guys that we've now spoken about, would he be fourth on that list of expected to move uh, before the season starts? It's tough to say. Uh, I would have said at the end of the year that the rankings would have been Dubois 1, Wheeler 2. You know, it's honestly still a coin flip between Hellebuck and Shifley. And, you know, from talking to people around the league on the weekend, there are people in other organizations that believe that the Jets would be super comfortable starting the season with both of those guys on their roster. Now, would that come with some risk attached? Of course, but uh, the Jets best pathway to the playoffs would be to keep their Vesna caliber goaltender and, you know, their number one center in the fold, I guess, unless they're being offered another number one center or a controllable asset. Now I understand completely that the asset management crowd is banging on the desks right now, Maddie, but I would just present it. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but I'm going to present a quick counter argument to the asset management crowd in Mark Shifley, the Jets, first ever 2.0 franchise draft pick in 2011, they have received, you know, a lot of production from that player, whether, you know, could, could I see a scenario where he is in the John Tavares category where the team is trying to compete and you roll the dice where you consider at the deadline where they are. I mean, he's given them a lot. And the thing with Shifley is without a, without a sign and trade like Dubois did. And the difference there is a 25 year old versus a 30 year old player. So, uh, could the Jets ride it out with Shifley? Sure. Uh, I do think that he's still a good candidate to be moved. And in terms of Hellebuck, Matty, this is a fifth-round draft pick. Uh, he's given them eight great seasons. If that ninth season gets them into the playoffs and he walks for nothing, I mean, I don't think it would be uh, optimal. But I do think you can make the case in saying if you're taking a run at it, Connor Hellebuck gives the Jets their best chance. And I'm just presenting those scenarios because – if they have been given offers that were, uh, you know, tempting, then I think those guys can get moved, of course. But if teams are thinking they're going to get them on the cheap, which, you know, in some cases it sounds like Montreal wasn't willing to go as far as L.A., I think the Jets could talk themselves into a scenario where not only starting the year but finishing the year with those two players. Now, like I said, I'm not saying that's the most likely outcome. I'm just saying that it's more of a possibility today than it would have been, you know, three months ago, let's say. Okay, I, I th- we got a couple minutes left, but I want to throw this out there. And, and I, I, if you're if you're not making a call on this player, then I think you're crazy. Even though he may or may, he's probably not available. But do you think that there is any scenario outside of like an absolute, complete overpay that Kyle Connor could be moved? Because when you look at that number, it's a great number for the Jets. It's a great number for any team. 7.142 million for a guy that scores 35 goals in his sleep. Um, there's no chance that they would move him, right? Like that that's one of those guys that if you are trying to content, compete and contend, that he's got to be still on your roster. Or do you think they would entertain a real overpay for him? Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting. I mean, I would say that unless the Jets are looking to change their roster construction, I think it's a hang-up-the-phone scenario. Yeah, sure, you would listen, but unless you're getting your socks blown off, I would have said the only way that Connor would have been 
entertained in any possible way, Maddie, would be if the Jets were going scorched earth rebuild uh, because Kyle was one of the most vocal guys at the exit meeting saying that no player wants to be part of a rebuild at that part in their or stage of their career. And hey, I mean, Kyle's goal totals were down in a year where I thought he would score 50, but he was still a point of game player. So he's still a very highly productive player. Uh, I think he's a big part of their future, along with Nikolai Ehlers. I think if they're, they're turning over this core, if Wheeler's going to be gone and Shifley could be gone, I think those are two guys the Jets want to be building around as foundational pillars. So uh, I don't see either one of those guys uh, on the way out unless, yeah, I just don't see them on the way out, that period. Never mind uh, unless there's a, t- you know, a team blows their socks off. But I, I, I don't envision a scenario where, where that's on the table right now, just given the fact that Jets are still trying to, you know, take another run at it, if you will. Yeah, I was just trying to swim in those waters. They they can't trade Kyle Connor. I love Kyle Connor. Like, there's something to be said about paying for easy goals. Um, and Kyle Connor, even though he didn't score 40 last year, he scored some pretty easy goals. Uh, Kenny, we're right up against the clock here. Thanks so much for taking some time, as always. And uh, I guess try and enjoy yourself because <laughs> there's going to be a lot going on over the over the next few days. So uh, try and get as much sleep as you can before uh, the draft tonight and then free agency opens up on the weekend. Uh, always a pleasure having you on, pal. Best time of the year. Thanks for having me. And also look for the Jets to maybe uh, alleviate some of the log jam on the blue line here over the next couple of days here as well. Oh, there we go. Leaving us with a bit of news there. Uh, Ken Weep from Sportsnet. Um, yeah, the Jets. I mean, Kevin Shevoldayoff's got some work to do. He's got, you know, he talked about the log jam on defense. Dylan Sandberg and Logan Stanley, RFAs. And then up front, they still need to sign uh, Velarde, Kapari, Morgan Barron, Kevin Stenlin. Like there's a, there's a lot of work to do for the Winnipeg Jets. Another one of those teams that we said, keep an eye on. It's happening. Everything is happening, in the words of Bob Cole. Everything is happening. Uh, and then there's the draft tonight. That one's going to be a fun one. We expect a lot of movement. We expect maybe some surprises. Who might those surprises be? We'll talk to Sam Cosentino when we come back. Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick Show. You're listening on the Sportsnet Radio Network, watching on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a few. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. Hour two of the Jeff Merrick Show. Matt Marchese in for Jeff the rest of the week. He will be back on Monday. Monday and Tuesday next week. And then... He does the Houdini. Goodbye, sweet summer. But before we get there, we've got a lot to get through. And that starts tonight with the NHL draft. And joining us on the line, uh, one of my favorite people, Sportsnet NHL draft analyst, Sam Cosentino. Sammy, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing great, Mars. How's it going? What's going on over there? You're pinch hitting again, eh? I'm pinch hitting again. I am like Rob Butler. I will forever be the pinch hitter here. (laughs) I figured you'd appreciate that one. Um, so, listen, th- this is this has to feel like Christmas for you, right? Like you, you do all the work, you you watch all these these young players, and and now we get to the point where it's like, okay, they're going to be selected, and their futures are going to be determined here. I asked Elliot this in in a different way, but do you ever just get a chance to sit back and look at this and go, wow, like this is this is a lot of fun. Oh yeah. I've been doing that a little bit more this year, you know, with my roles having changed a little bit, uh, I could spend a little bit more time just working, working on the draft, learning from Jason Buco, who's been uh, an unbelievable mentor to, to learn more of the hockey side from, uh, but sitting back and thinking about, wow, it's got to track Connor Bedard since he was granted exceptional, you know, and interviewed him right off the hop there when that happened and just have kind of tracked him through his under 18s and world juniors. Uh, but there's a lot of other guys too. And, you know, this year I was able to, to broaden the horizons a little bit, get to spend some time uh, working with the U.S. under 18 program. They'll have probably five or six guys here going the first round. And so pretty cool to get to know those kids. And then, of course, you know, still with ties to the CHL, got out to Langley and to, to meet a bunch of the top prospects coming out of the CHL. So 
it's been super, super enjoyable. Um, but it's going to be cool to say, hey, I was part of the, the Connor Bedard draft. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I'm going to – it's funny you say, well, it's going to be fun to, you know, watch Connor Bedard. Um, we've all asked the questions about what he's great at, and we know he's great at almost everything. Um, but when you look at him, he's going to be going first overall tonight to the Chicago Blackhawks. What do you think is the thing he needs to work on the most before he becomes an NHLer? Well, I, I think he's going to play right away. But but here's a guy, like, he attacks every day with the sole purpose of getting better, yet still being able to enjoy himself. And that's that's a rare combination. A lot of these guys that are so locked in are just so dialed into hockey that, that everything else doesn't seem to matter. Connor has a nice balance between him being able to enjoy himself but still getting to work. So I would say at this point, and, and having talked to him, First step quickness is something that he's working on. He's working on building a a stronger foundation with his lower half. I've already seen his guns, triceps and biceps immensely. Like I'm, I'm just shocked, like seeing him at the combine. So really it's, it's more about just the progression for him in all areas. I wouldn't say that, you know, there's one particular focus on, on one thing. Face-offs will probably be something that, uh, you know, that will need some help moving into the NHL circle. But he's always working on a shot. He's always working on his skating. He's always working on his playmaking. So he's he's just dialed in. He's just dialed in and, and you know, willing to improve in every facet. Now, do you? I, I'm, we may have had this conversation already about his, his future. Like, he's going to be a center in the NHL. Is he going to be a center right away? Ooh, that, that's a great question. And, that, and you know, I haven't had a look at Chicago's roster. I mean, obviously. I can tell you it's not very up. good. <laughs> yeah, it's been stripped down to the bare bones. Yeah. I mean, obviously they add Hall. Hall will be on the wing. I think they can insulate him with a few more additions similar to that. And we'll see what happens here. I mean, they've got a lot of draft capital. They have tons of uh, cap space. I think probably now 40, uh, sorry, 30 some million dollars. So they should be able to insulate him better. But it's that balance between, you know, hey, we got Connor Bernard, let's go get it right away, or still remain on that steady path to develop your prospects and move forward and then pounce at the right time. But uh, I think if, if, if it were the roster that is today, I don't know if he would play center. Um, but I think by the time we get to the start of the season, he'll be insulated enough where he'll be able to play center. Um, we, we all believe that the draft kind of starts at four, but I would, I say that reluctantly because of the two guys that are drafting two and three. Pat Verbeek comes from a a school in Detroit where Steve Eiserman was not afraid to go off the board, whether it was in Tampa Bay or in Detroit. And, and in some facets, it's, it's really worked out. Look no further than more at cider. Uh, the same thing can be said for number three with Yarmo Kekalainen. He is certainly not afraid to take a chance. Um, is Adam Fantilli a lock at number two, or do you think we could see some fireworks early? I think Fantilli is a lock at two. And, you know, having seen Ryan Getzlaff recently named to a player development coordinator position, I can't think of any any better way and any other better person to pass the ball to a guy who sort of resembles Getzlaff. Having said that, I mean, you're right. Pat Verbeek, they, you know, everything's uh, shrouded into secrecy. You can't get in and out of the Anaheim Ducks. He would definitely not be afraid to to do the bold thing. And Yarmo, I mean, hey, we've seen it with Chinnikov. We saw it with Dubois back in 2016. Like, he's not afraid to go off the board either. And I have heard Will Smith's name connected to Columbus. Mm. But let's not forget, Maddie. like, a lot of people are throwing deeks out there because they know that the higher they are in the draft, and, the, and they know what, what teams are coveting what players. So you're trying to posture and maybe create a deal where you can uh, add some additional assets. Well, I pray for chaos. I mean, I pray for chaos only after Adam Fantilli goes number two because I said it to Elliot. Uh, Nobleton, Ontario, where I grew up, would be very, very happy to see one of their young stars go number two. So that would be that would be fantastic for my little hometown. Um, okay. Here's the big one, the unknown, and that's Matvey Mitchkov. And I, I keep I keep going back to this idea that somebody who thinks that their window is far enough away could look at this and go, we're willing to take a chance. I think San Jose fits that bill. I think that Arizona fits that bill. I think Montreal fits that bill less so. And I think Philadelphia is in that conversation. 
I wondered about him getting past San Jose at number four, and then and then all hell breaks loose because Montreal. I feel like they could trade that pick for a, a pretty good haul. Um, where do you think that he ends up here? Because that seems to be the one that kind of determines how everything else is going to fall here. Yeah, I, I agree with that sentiment. I think he enters the conversation at four. I don't think at five he's a possibility. Six I'm hearing less of. I have him pegged at Philly. I'm going to keep it there right now. But I think Philly also knows that sitting right behind him is Washington and there might be some posturing that's that's going on there. I just... There's just so much risk. So if you're Mike Greer, this is the first draft that you've actually had your hands on from the start of the year until the end. Um, and I think that I'm, I don't want in my first draft to have to wait for three years for a guy, and that's assuming he's going to come after that time frame. It, and still, I, I still think that's that's to be determined. It's it's not a gold standard. It's not to, you know it's not passed. So. And at that point, then you look at Arizona. They're in a different situation. I mean, you got a gazillion picks. You only have 50 contracts. They don't even really have a home beyond this year. So that's a team that I could see entering the conversation, but I haven't heard much talk about him going there. Now, Philadelphia is also a fascinating destination. You know, with all the changes of some uh, former ex-players being brought in there to help out Daniel Breer taking over, you think they might be a little bit gun-shy with Yerman Rubsoff and and uh, the goalie whose name escapes me right now, uh, you know, didn't pan out for them. But from what I can understand, I think Philadelphia would still be willing to go down that road, and that's where I've heard the most smoke. So I think it gets gets started there at seven. David Reinbacher is one of the more intriguing prospects. He's already six two and one eighty five. He's still got you know, like you like you mentioned in your column, still got a lot of room to grow physically. How do you think he profiles at the NHL level? He's a two way defenseman, but is the offense going to grow enough where we can still consider him to be that when he gets to the NHL level? Or do you see him in a different way once he matures and becomes a full-time NHLer? I look at him as Noah Dobson. Okay. His offense is just going to continue to rise. A guy who's big, who skates really well, who can play in all kinds of situations for you, who can log a lot of minutes because he's physically fit. And a guy who comes into the league understanding that he's got to make his mark playing D first and then allow the offense to, you know, to develop organically. And I think that's the exact same pattern that I would see Reinbacker moving on. Now, maybe it's a little bit accelerated because Noah Dobson came out of junior hockey and then you had Reinbacker who spent a, a whole year in the, in the Swiss league um, as an Austrian-born player. So he might be a little bit ahead of where Noah was at this time. But I do see uh, very similar paths to to, uh, to Noah. Sam Cosentino from NHL on Sports and draft analyst. Um, you talked about spending some time uh, with the U.S. Uh, under eighteen team, and listen, that program has really taken off over the last five to eight years. And look no further than this year. You mentioned potentially six first round picks off of one team, which is basically unheard of. Um, and there's and there's potentially three in even the top 12 or top 15 with Will Smith, Ryan Leonard, and, and Gabe Perot. We've talked about the rise in elite American players, but uh, the way that you see the, the national development program churning out players, this really doesn't look like it's going to slow down anytime soon, does it? No, and the game continues to grow. I mean, when you see some of those, like just being here in Nashville and seeing how the people have embraced hockey, uh, a lot of times you find players who end up playing somewhere end up staying there. So Florida is a good example of that. We're going to start to see more from Florida. We've seen that in LA. We've seen it in Arizona. Dallas is, uh, or the Texas area is, is up and coming for that. Um, so the more that these kind of non-traditional markets embrace the game, the more that players who ended up living there with their families, they get back into it at the lower levels, whether it's their kids or whether it's through, um, some of these academies that have that have popped up, and as that happens, and the game grows bigger, the central point of the, is of course Plymouth, where that U.S. Under 18 program uh, is situated. So I I, I only see it growing. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, like Cole Eiserman already for next year. Michael Hagens is two guys who lit up the under 17s, who are going to feature prominently in that program next year, and I think that's. Uh, that bodes well for the next wave of Americans beginning as early as next year. And that that top line that they had this year with Perot, with uh, Leonard, with Smith was absolutely incredible, breaking records left and right. Um, 
Parole is is the third ranked guy out of the three of them, but could you see him sneaking into into the top twelve? Because certainly there is there is a playmaking ability there that is very special, um, and he's got the NHL lineage. Is that a guy that maybe could surprise a little bit? I he he could, but like when I'm looking inside that top ten, I'm seeing a couple of different elements. I'm seeing a couple of right shot D. You know, I'm seeing the top three to, to the top probably five spots already taken. So now you're squeezed down, squeezed down, squeezed down a little bit. He is really slight a frame. And what we saw with the Stanley Cup final is that, hey, listen, size still matters. And I think that will probably work against him a little bit. But again, uh, he has so many things working in his favor. What would be kind of neat for me, I think Chicago's second first-round pick, if they ended up going the way of Perot, obviously because of his dad working for the organization, but two years from now, this guy feeding pucks to Connor Bedard would be just a, a show to watch on its own. Yeah, it really would. Um, okay, now, is there is there a guy that you have in your top 20 that you look at and say, okay, much like Perot, there's a, there's a lot of upside there, and, you know, we've seen it in the past. There are guys that, you know, there are GMs that go – they go off the board, and by off the board, it's what the rest of us are saying, but they have somebody a lot higher. Maybe you've heard a name. Maybe, you know, maybe it's someone that you think could, you know, be, make a last-second jump up the rankings. Uh, is there anybody that you, that you think could fit that bill in the top 20? I have a guy by the name of David Edstrom going to the Rangers at 23. He's a really interesting guy. Missed a couple of months due to injury this year. He's fully recovered from that, came back as a – 6'3", 190-pound guy, super serious guy, willing to put the work in, understands himself as a player and what he needs to work on to get better. But that under-18 recency bias, coupled with the size and the fact that he plays center, I think are things that are really working in his favor. 23, you know, he would be a guy that I could see jumping into that top 20, maybe even that top 15. I suppose one other guy that I would – strongly consider would be Samuel Honzik. I have him at 16 to Calgary. Wouldn't surprise me if he got into the top 10. There's That's the intrigue for me. Like there's always one guy that goes later than you thought. There's always one guy that you, that goes a little bit earlier than you thought. Um, and, and that's why we love the draft. I mean, guys, you know, there's going to be lots of activity tonight. Is there, is there a player that you think could end up sneaking into the first round? Because, you know, those later picks, like I look at a team like Toronto, it's a later first round pick and, and maybe, maybe they can take a swing because, you know, I know the prospect pool isn't great, but they're also in a situation where, you know, maybe they do end up taking a swing on a guy that has, you know, a lot of high end potential, but maybe, you know, some people had a little bit lower on their boards. Carson Rickhoff would be that guy. Now, some people do have him going in the first round, plays for the Kitchener Rangers, 6'3 guy, thick frame, um, just showed a lot of inconsistency in his game throughout the year. But when he's on and when he's engaged physically and is playing a straight-line game, he's a really tough guy to handle. So coming out of a really good Kitchener Rangers program that gets scouted heavily because of its low, uh, locale and being close to Toronto, he would be a fascinating guy for me. Not completely out of range going in the first round, but for the most part, he probably sits in that 36 range, but I could see him ending up uh, towards, you know, the, the bottom half of round one. Okay. The goalie question. Um, I, I don't believe that you had any goalie in your first round. I know at points you did this season. Um, is there, who do you think ends up being the first goalie off the board? I know Trey Augustine was a guy that we had spoken about. Um, is that still your, your top ranked goalie? I know Bukula is really hot on Augustine, but at 6-1, probably half the market has already eliminated him from contention. Which is crazy. Looking, <laughs> which is crazy. Like, stop the puck, right? Isn't that the whole idea? Stop the puck. Um, but the guy would be Michael Rabel, plays uh, out of the USHL, 6-7 guy. Uh, I think everyone is going to be excited about the prospects of getting a 6-7 guy who's on his way to going the college route, which is the preferred, at least in my opinion, developmental route for goalies because you can let them go play for four years. Then by the time you get them out, you know, they're, they're 22 years old and you're a lot closer to that player actually having an impact in your NHL organization. So he's probably the guy for me just based on, on size alone. Where do you stand on the whole drafting a goalie thing? Because 
I mean, well, you're obviously going to draft them when you think you need them, but I've always been of the impression, and it's much like in the NFL, I believe, you should always draft a quarterback only because it's the most important position in the sport, and you never know how a guy is going to develop. How many, like, Connor Hellebuck is one of the best goalies in the NHL. He was a fifth-round pick. Um, and there's a long list of guys that just develop, and especially at that position where sometimes it just does take a little bit longer to develop. If you were running a- an organization, would you be one of those that would say, no, we're going to take a goalie. It doesn't matter where. It could be in the seventh round. It could be in the third round. But we're going to draft a goalie every year just because the position is so important. And we've also seen that goalies go through different you know, like much like relief pitchers in baseball, you have elite goalies for two, three years, and then they kind of fall off the map. You're constantly interchanging that position. Is that something that you believe more teams should be doing? It's it's a tough tap dance because when you once you draft a goalie, you have to ensure that he has a place to play. So if that's going back to junior, is he going to be a starter? If he has to turn pro, is there going to be room in the East Coast League? How many games would he play in the American League? So that's always the toughest spot. And that's why you can't have too many of them. And if you do, they have to be placed in, okay, college, we know we got a four-year guy. CHL, we know we, he's going to play for the next two years, at least in the CHL. we got our East Coast guy who's 21 years old. It's really about mapping out where they can play because more so than any other position, that position needs to play and needs to play a lot. So I'm not all for, for drafting. I'm not at all for drafting a guy in the first round. I think that the path is too long for him to get there. The other strategy I would probably employ is I'd be looking at guys that have gone through the draft at least once and probably twice already. They're a little bit closer to physical maturity. They're better mentally prepared to handle the position. And as a result of that, when you're 20 years old and you get drafted, now that window is five years because I look at guys as 25 year, at 25 years old starting to have an impact. Now you're five years away as opposed to seven if you're drafting them in their first year of eligibility. So I'm looking at overage guys. I'm looking at guys that, that uh, play in college because of the four-year developmental path. Um, but I'm also very careful not to have too many of them in my system because they all need to play. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be super interesting tonight. As you as you always know, Sam, the draft is uh, is a lot of fun to begin with. But then when we add in all the chaos that's been going on all week, uh, I anticipate you're gonna be having a lot of fun tonight. Yeah, I sure do. Hopefully some picks move and uh, not until the, uh, you know, the start of this thing. Yeah. Let you get situated and grab your seat before all this stuff happens. Right. You got it. You got (laughs) it. And then let the fireworks begin. That's it. Uh, Sammy, thanks so much for taking some time today. Really appreciate it, pal. Okay, Maddie, take care. There you go. Sam Cosentino, NHL on Sportsnet, our draft analyst. And I mean, the timing of our next guest is, is pretty like, it's almost as if we knew that this was going to happen. We didn't. I, we had no idea. Although we did think that uh, that there was going to be a, a deal in place. It looks like we are closing in on an extension for Timo Meyer. Uh, it looks like it's, a, it's, gonna, it's an eight-year deal. We're just waiting to confirm those numbers. But it, it might come in a little bit higher than I thought. Uh, I didn't think that they were going to go over the Jack Hughes number, but we may be in over the Jack Hughes territory right now. Um, this this extension for Timo Meyer probably takes the Devils out of the running for a guy like Connor Hellebuck, as my pal Mike McKenna just pointed out on Twitter. That may be the pipe dream. Maybe it looks like we are going to have a tandem of Akira Schmid and Vitek Vanacek in New Jersey. Not saying that that's a bad thing, because I think both guys had shown at different points of the year last year that this was, they'll be okay. Um, But man, Connor Hellbuck would have looked pretty solid in that lineup. And then we focus our attention to what happens to Connor Hellebuck, because a lot of people had New Jersey pegged as maybe one of the front runners. And like Ken Weeb said in the last hour, maybe there's a situation where Connor Hellbuck doesn't move because the price isn't met. And then they figure it out. I mean, you don't want to lose him for nothing, but could be a guy that they hold on to till the deadline. Maybe a goalie gets hurt and then you're, you pounce on the opportunity, but busy, busy times. There's still plenty of people available. There are, you know, we talked about the Eric Carlson's. We talked about, 
the uh, maybe William Nylanders and and go down the list, Evgeny Kuznetsov and John Gibson and all the way down the list. But one guy who we know is not moving is Timo Meyer. Tom Fitzgerald said on this program uh, about a, almost two weeks ago, uh, they were going to get that deal done. And it looks like that is what's happening. Uh, speaking of those New Jersey Devils, Christy Flannery, Devils reporter for the Hockey News, joins me now. Christy, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I mean, must be pretty good now. It looks like Timo Meyer's deal is done. Uh, and the New Jersey Devils have been very busy. And I, I pointed this out on Twitter. Like, Tom Fitzgerald has... He, he has the extension for Brat. Then he's got Severson in a sign and trade and Eric Hall to an extension and Shane Bowers. He brings in moves Blackwood, uh, brings into Foley for Sharon Govich makes miles wood available. Now we have a Nico. He uh, um, a Timo Meyer extension. Um, I tweeted yesterday, Tom Fitzgerald loves fantasy football and he's treating his team like a fantasy football team. And I love it. What's it like covering a team like this right now? It is, I can't even explain how much fun it is to cover a team like this. And as I was watching the news break for Timo Meyer, I kind of just had a moment. I said, Tom Fitzgerald's not a finalist for GM of the year. How is that possible? <laughs> I know, I know. And he's, and he's one of the, listen, he's a very forthright guy. He's certainly not afraid to talk to the media. I mean, he jumped on with me, of all people, a couple weeks ago. And, <laughs> and the one thing, and, and we'll, we'll kind of zero in on this, on this, on this Meyer extension because we do, we, it looks like it's going to be over 8 million. And I wondered about Tom Fitzgerald and I asked him this point blank, like, are you willing to go over the Jack Hughes number? And it looks like that's going to be the case. Are you a little bit surprised that it's, it's gone higher than, than the Jack Hughes number? I kind of go back and forth. And the reason that I'm not fully surprised is because when you look at round one, the role that Timo Meyer embraced versus the Rangers no other player on that roster was going to be able to do what he did and contribute in a way that he did without actually putting up numbers and scoring goals. And I think you saw how valuable and unique he is to the roster that they currently have. Um, so I'm not overly surprised. I'm impressed that it's under nine. Well, and that, and that was somebody else had pointed that out as well, that, you know, the, the fact that you got Meyer under nine on the, the max term is, is great, but what it does is it makes it, I guess it makes it pretty obvious that Connor Hellebuck is not going to be a part of this organization. Um, are you a little bit maybe surprised that they wouldn't try and allocate some assets, some money to try and bring in a goalie? Or are you comfortable with what you saw from Vitek Vanacek and Akira Schmid last year? Um, I always had the impression of just run it back with Akira and Vitek. I think the postseason, it wasn't, you know, it was new for VTEC. It was new for Akira. It was new for a lot of those guys on that team, and they got a first taste of it. Hellebuck is an interesting situation because obviously, if they did bring him in, he would be an immediate boost to the team. And some are saying maybe he is the final piece to Fitzgerald's puzzle. But in this case, is the juice worth the squeeze? And at this point, I'm comfortable going back with VTEC and Akira. Now, with that being said, are, is is your comfortability or does your comfortability lie with the fact that this is a really good defensive group? I mean, Dougie Hamilton had an incredible season last year. You look at, at the improvement from Kevin Ball. You look at what Luke Hughes is going to bring to this roster. like they, and, and eventually Simon Nemich. Um, is that part of the conversation here? I mean... When we look at the Devils, we know that they're very uh, analytically built, and and that's a big part of what they do in their acquisitions. But the way that the defensive group played in front of those goalies all year, does that kind of also, you know, make things a little bit more comfortable? Yeah, I think so. And even if you look at the forwards, the forwards play a pretty strong defensive game as well. You know, you see, you know, Brat skating back playing defense. You see Jack doing it. Nico obviously plays well defensively. Michael McLeod plays well. It's really just the system in place with Lindy Ruff and how the entire team plays. And I think that it's kind of unfair to kind of judge VTech on the postseason and kind of let that overshadow what he was able to accomplish in the regular season. Yes, he had a less than desirable postseason, you know, performance, but you shouldn't let that take away from what he was able to do in the regular season and push that team to the playoffs and have them be one of the top teams in the league for basically the entire regular season. 
when you look at the goaltending split, do you envision we're going to see like, you know, 52 games from Vanacek? This is all based on health as well. Like, I don't think anybody's anticipating that Akira Schmid's going to come in in his first year in the NHL and play 40 games. But do you think he's more of a, a 30 game guy right now and then kind of just figure it out and let him play at the NHL level? And then, you know, Vitek Vanacek is still your 1A to the Akira Schmid 1B. And I think that you hear a lot of people say that the 1A, 1B is just kind of how everybody is in the league. It's very rare that you have a definitive, you know, starter and then a definitive backup. A lot of these teams, I mean, look what Vegas said. How many goaltenders did Vegas go through this past season? So I could see, I could see VTech taking on um, a lot of the load this coming season, but I think Akira can hold his own. And again, Akira is still young. He's developing. And for some reason, he's a goaltender that plays better in the NHL than he does in the AHL. So having this experience for him is a really good thing. And it seems like, you know, even when you added Blackwood into the equation, the three goaltenders, they get along really well. They have a really good relationship with each other. So I don't really think there's as much to worry about in the goaltending position as maybe outside noise suggests. Christy Flannery from the Hockey News joining Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick Show. So you mentioned the three goalies. Mackenzie Blackwood moved yesterday for a sixth-round pick to San Jose. It didn't it didn't sound like the Devils were going to qualify him. Uh, so getting any sort of asset is, is a good bit of business for Tom Fitzgerald. Um, where did it all go wrong for Mackenzie Blackwood? Like, I know, like, this was a, this was a goalie that we talked about at points. If NHLers were going to the Olympics, that maybe Mackenzie Blackwood was going to be one of the goaltenders that was playing for team Canada. Like it's been a really big kind of fall from grace for him. Is this just, I know there was some other issues, but health is, is a big, big part of it. Um, is that Mm -hmm. just where this thing kind of fell off the rails for him? And, and, is, is a change of scenery what's needed here? I do think a change of – I think he is a player that would benefit from a change of scenery, and I think for him the writing was on the wall, especially with the emergence of Akira, that everyone kind of knew Blackwood was going to end up being the odd, the odd man out. And during his end-of-season media availability, he shared that he would be open to New Jersey and coming back, but he wanted an opportunity. And I just don't think he was going to get that opportunity in New Jersey with VTech and Akira. I think injuries were really the big storyline of his career so far. And I think, too, when you have a goaltender, you know, you're in and out of the lineup, you're coming back from injury, and you're trying to get that consistency, those constant reps to get yourself back into form. And he just never had the opportunity here to get into form. And so for him, I think a change of scenery will do him wonders. And even with San Jose, I know a lot of fans are disappointed that they that's the goaltender that their organization went after. But depending on his health, he can be a solid goaltender. Fans have seen him steal games and have an exceptional game, you know, you know, here and there. So I think for him and what San Jose fans can expect is everything for him is going to rely on his health. Yeah, I don't think San Jose fans can complain about anything based on what we've seen out of their goalies the last two years. But whatever. I mean, I mean, I'm just, I'm just an observer. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, okay. The other thing that happened yesterday, and this was, I mean, we've kind of glossed over it because there's so many things happening with the Devils. But they bring in Tyler Toffoli for Yegor Sharon Govich in a third round pick. Uh, it's Calgary's pick that they get back. Sharon Govich was a guy that felt like a luxury at this point. Like they were not going to be able to re-sign him, or at least maybe they didn't want to because, you know, the the fit wasn't there, whatever the case may be. But New Jersey does really well in this deal. They bring in a guy with Stanley Cup experience. Um, he can score goals. Where is his best fit? Because the where I had him pegged was with Meyer and with Hughes. Um, is that where you see him, or do you see him in a different spot? He's definitely going to be top six. And I think what you see Fitzgerald has been doing, and he started kind of on the blue line, he's getting bigger. He's getting stronger. He brought in Dougie Hamilton at six foot six. Ryan Gray's at six foot five. Timo Meyer, who's listed at six one two twenty. You have Toffoli, who's now 203 pounds. And that's adding weight to your core that Bratz 175. Nico's listed 175. Jack is listed at 175. Like, it's not a big forward group core that Fitzgerald has and he's bringing in that physicality and that extra weight to his top six I personally love the move I think that it's exactly what the team needed yeah I thought so too and to bring that experience into a young group I mean that's going to be that's I think that part is something that is it gets underplayed a little bit but Toffoli certainly has uh has that winning pedigree um 
when we look at how this team is built and the job that Tom Fitzgerald has done, I mean, you look at the high-end talent that they already have on the roster, and then you see what's coming up. Like, we haven't even talked about Alexander Holtz. Uh, we talked briefly mm-hmm. about Luke Hughes and, and Simon Nemich. Um, when you look at the development and and the future of this team, it does really feel like that Metropolitan Division, outside of some disaster, really kind of does look like the New Jersey Devils for the next four four or five years here. Yeah, and that's where you have to give Fitzgerald credit. Is I think a lot of times you see organizations that they're constantly in a win-now mode, and that's not what Fitzgerald is doing in New Jersey. He's building a team that can be competitive over many, many seasons, and that's why when you hear, you know, the Philadelphia Flyers GM talk or a lot of these GMs that are in these rebuilding, you know, moments in their organization, they look at what Fitzgerald's doing in New Jersey because it might have taken longer than Devils fans would have liked, but you're seeing now what he built towards and that, yes, you have Jack Hughes. Yes, you have Nico Heischer, but you also have the pieces that you need to win a Stanley Cup. And even going back to, you know, the experience with Tyler Safoli. I don't think people realize how important it was to have an Eric Halla and a Brendan Smith in that locker room last season. I'm going to leave Palat out just because he dealt with injury, but people are underestimating how important it is to have that voice amongst, you know, these kids that are still kind of trying to find their way in the NHL and reach their prime because they're not there yet. Yeah. And, and two of those guys, and just before we let you go here, two of those guys, I mentioned Luke Hughes, Simon Nemich, um, what are your expect Luke Hughes? We I think we're pretty certain that he's locked into a roster mm-hmm. spot next year. Nemich is the interesting one because um, played his first year of pro here in North America last season was very good. Is he a guy that you think starts the year with the Devils, or do you think he ends up in Utica to start the year and we eventually see him later on in the season? You know, I think it's a really tough question. I think it's going to depend on how he, you know, what he brings to training camp. The way that I look at him is I don't think this is a defenseman that the organization is looking to rush to the NHL. I think they want to take their time and develop him properly. And even for those arguing that, oh, you know, we don't have Damon Severson anymore. They don't have anything on the right side. Kevin Ball can play both sides. Brendan Smith can play both sides. So I don't think there's a necessary need to kind of force Nemich into the NHL if they don't feel that he's ready for it or they want to continue to develop him. I do think he will make his NHL debut in the 23-24 season. I'm not 100% sold at this point in time that he's going to make the opening night roster. I think they want to take their time. And defensemen take longer to develop. That's just, you know, everyone knows that. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting. And uh, I don't think that Tom Fitzgerald is anywhere near done. Christy, thanks so much for taking mm-hmm. some time for me today. Really appreciate it. And uh, and enjoy the next couple of days in this offseason because it's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. There she goes. Christy Flannery from the Hockey News. We are tied up against it. So when we come back, we're going to talk to Megan Angley. The Colorado Avalanche have been busy. Alex Newhook, gone. Ross Colton, Ryan Johansson, in. And then there's more. Megan Angley, when we come back. Matt Marchese in for Jeff Merrick on the Jeff Merrick Show. Watching on Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360. Listening on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. Final segment of the Jeff Merrick Show for Wednesday, June the 28th. Okay, it is official. Timo Meyer, eight-year deal. million per season. Man, that's a lot of schedule. That's a lot of money. Good for Timo Meyer. Good for the New Jersey Jersey Devils. Uh, They've been busy. Also, you know who else has been busy? The Colorado Avalanche have been busy. Um, And I don't think they're done. Uh, Megan Angley from DNVR Sports joining Matt Marchese here on the line. Megan, uh, first off, how's Nashville? Oh, it's great. And it's definitely kept us busy over here and we're going to be doing draft coverage starting tonight but we're kind of laughing to ourselves unsure if they're going to hold on to the picks at at 27 and 31. Yeah I I wondered about that Uh, and for those that for those that have missed it um, they traded Alex Newhook yesterday to Montreal for picks 31 and 37 then they flipped 37 for Ross Colton and you know you mentioned making both picks there is something about the window that the Colorado Avalanche are in that makes me think that Chris McFarland is up to something because, you know, you look at the deal that he made to to bring in Ryan Johansson. It looks like they've 
They've kind of solidified that 2C spot. They bring in Ross Colton, and he's going to be their 3C. I wonder about adding some some talent on the wing. Do you, do you think that Colorado makes both of those picks, or do you think that Chris McFarland is, is busy on the sidelines here? Oh, he's 100% busy. This is all but affirmed just in the Johansson and Colton moves, but Kale McCarr was out here for the awards for the Norris nomination, and he even affirmed this himself after the Johansson move that they're not done. This window is right open, and the guys are getting excited, but there is more to be done beyond Johansson. And obviously Ross Colton is a big improvement, but with Landeskog gone for the next season, they do need to consider a winner as an option. Also with Eric Johnson hitting free agency, they might need to look at some options for defensemen too. And seeing these two positional needs just by themselves needing to be filled, they absolutely aren't done. I don't know if they're going to leverage one of these picks, but it's definitely going to be something you have to keep an eye out. They're going to be doing more. Yeah, you know, the, I, I talked about this with with Elliot Friedman earlier, and you know, the one downfall that the Abs had this year in the first round was not only were they hurt, like they were really banged up, you know, and then the Nachushkin thing happens, and it just turns into a bit of a nightmare. Um, what they didn't have this year that they had in their Cup run was a lot of depth, and when you look at the acquisitions of Johansson at a really team friendly number of four million, and then you look at you know, what they gave up to get Ross Colton. Essentially, they traded Alex Newhook for a first-round pick in Ross Colton, and that's that's a pretty impressive bit of business. Um, is that going to be the biggest off-season rejuggling here? Is that they just start to add some depth pieces because they have the stars. There's no question about that. McKinnon, McCarr, Rantanen, they're there. They're not going anywhere. But is rounding out the roster the biggest part of Chris, Chris McFarland's job this off-season? Oh, absolutely. It's not, it's, it's a demand, right? It's a necessity for the abs to make competitive. I don't know if they'll ever be as well constructed as that 2022 team, but the depth of that 2022 team is what made them so successful and what they were lacking in this last year, like you mentioned. And that's actually where there's some question marks too, because we do, like you mentioned, the top six, we have an idea of what that looks like. Even, you know, we're counting on the Bowen Byram extension getting signed like that is going to be a player we expect back and so you have then your your top pair defensemen and your second pair defensemen at least through the next year pretty confirmed it leaves then in the forward group specifically third and fourth line question marks is evan rodriguez going to be back in colorado next year i know they'd like to see him back here they do need to make some of those decisions logan o'connor will be there is andrew cogliano coming back so they definitely have some questions to answer there and this was a great step forward, though, to round out the middle six because obviously resolving the 2C solution was the first order of business, and I'm glad to see they got it taken care of, but there's more to be done. When you look at the the needs in the bottom six, like th- this is a color, this Colorado team plays fast, and they've done that over the last few seasons under Jared Bednar, but what they don't have a ton of, and they've got guys that are big and strong, but they're not super, super physical in that bottom six. Is that something that may be a priority, or do you think it's still going to be speed that they try and fill out that bottom six with? It's going to be both, because the way the entirety of the Avs like to play is fast, like you mentioned. And so even some of their depth players, like one of their best lines from that 2022 team, I should say most consistent, and you look to as really reliable was Logan O'Connor, Darren Helm, and Andrew Cogliano. And they actually can pick up some speed. This was something also that Newhook brought to the table that I think they'll miss. But this is why I think it's important for all of these things to work together because that fourth line option was also difficult to play against. They could be a punishing presence. And I think this is why Ross Colton makes for a very good fit, even Ryan Johansson. They're going to be players that you're not looking to be opposite of. And so anyone else, too, that they're looking for to round out the bottom six has to have both of these qualities, the speed, but also a little bit of the sandpaper to their game. Megan Angley from DNVR Sports joining Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick Show. You mentioned Bowen Byram and that extension. Um, he's he's one of the more intriguing extension candidates because, I mean, he's an RFA, so he, he needs a contract. But when you look at the body of work, he hasn't played a ton in the NHL, but when he does, you know what you're getting. And when Kale McCarr is out, he really, really shines. So you can see where the ceiling could be with Bowen Byram, but it's really hard to do an extension for a guy that's played as little as he has. 
Do you think this is a long-term deal? Do you think this is a bridge deal where, you know, maybe he takes a little bit less money and then can really kind of hit the bank when, when this cap starts to go up? How do you think that they approach this extension with him? I think, too, why we haven't seen it come about sooner and, and why I don't think we could expect to is because he is an advocate for himself and he has terrific confidence. And I think this is something the organization really appreciates about him as a person and a player. And so for that reason, I'm sure that there's some leverage in the conversation surrounding his health from the outside, but Owen Byron recognizes his potential. And that is something the Avs can't deny either. I could see them aiming for a long-term contract to satisfy Byron's side of things. I think that's something that he would be pushing for. And I could see the Avs entertaining it, too, because I think they have a lot of belief in him. The injury history is absolutely a factor to consider here, but I think that with Devontae being a guy that they're just not likely to keep on beyond next year because he's just too good. I don't think they'll be able to afford him. Byron is the future, and I think the Avs are going to invest in that. Bowen Byram, 91 NHL games, and, and you talked about the talent. It's it's really interesting. The guy that the guy that I wondered about, and and you know, you you mentioned Devon Taves there as as a guy that they might not be able to keep. If they were to try and keep him, the one guy that I keep thinking about is Sam Gerard. And he's got a really good contract. He's really reliable, very solid player, can can play on your top power play unit if you need to. He he does a lot of really good he does a lot of things really, really well. But is there a chance that maybe Sam Gerrard is a luxury if you're trying to sign Bowen Byram to an extension? Oh, absolutely. And it's everything you just said, the affordability of what he is. And he's versatile. He's fast. A lot of teams, like, he's taken a lot of heat in Colorado at times from the fan base. But I, I just don't know if people appreciate that for the value especially, that is a second-pairing defenseman on any NHL team as minimum. And that is something that other teams are going to be very interested in. I honestly thought before some of this has happened with Johansson and then Ross Colton, I thought that he would be a player leveraged to bring about a roster player. I'm not taking that off the table either, but that is someone that I've looked to that might be, like you said, a luxury that they could afford to part with only because they are getting aggressive about maximizing how competitive they are within this window. And that means making some tough decisions. Yeah, and, and again, you know, what you could get back for a guy, like you mentioned with Sam Gerrard, is, is something that could help round out the roster. They are deep on defense. Like, you know, when when Josh Manson is, you know, your number five, uh, that's pretty good. And I know they do need to add at the position, but it's a, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good spot to be in. Um, another, let, let's get to the Ross Colton thing, because that was the deal of today. I really like that bit of business. I think Colton is a guy that slots in, as your three C, but with better opportunity because, you know, he played behind some really good players in Tampa Bay and it was really hard for him to move up the lineup. Three C is where I have him in killing penalties. When you look at Ross Colton and you look at where he fits, you kind of see the same thing. A, a guy that is versatile can move up the lineup, can even play wing if you need him to. Um, and why is that such a good fit for Colorado? Well, you can't talk about Ross Colton without mentioning JT Comfer. And if I'm Ross Colton, you see in real time the opportunity that's available here in Colorado to be promoted within the lineup. Now, that's obviously break in case of emergency if something didn't go right with Ryan Johansson at 2C. But when we were talking about JT Comfer staying in Colorado, it would be really hard to justify the price point that he is inevitably going to fetch. And then you would be paying 2C and 3C a pretty fair amount of money for Johansson and Comper. If he were to stay in Colorado, it might even be more than that four mil that you're looking at with Ryan Johansson. That's just not feasible. And I think the Avs had to accept that. JT Comper would be moving on. Ross Colton then gets to come in, and obviously they still need to sign him, but they'll have their first crack at it. And I think it will still come in as more affordable than what JT Comper could have offered. And so Colton will have the opportunity here, but he will also... Um, bring about so many qualities that are invaluable to that third line with the opportunity to play off in the lineup as needed. And I think we talked about the physicality component. This is absolutely something that he's going to bring, that they're going to appreciate. And in losing Newhook and not having Landis Gog available next season, what Ross Colton brings is going to help answer some of those losses. Like the net front presence, the physicality would remind you of Gabriel Landis Gog. 
in looking at the Seattle series, too, I think some of what they're doing is to address some of the shortcomings, too. They, like Seattle, manage their lane so well, as couldn't get shots through. And so they have the, the guys with the puck skill, but they needed a guy who was just going to shoot in high volume, and that is Ross Colton. And so he's going to bring about a little bit of offense. Like, even in looking at GT Compa's play in the Seattle series, it grew a little quieter than they needed from him. This is something that Ross Colton can do from the third line, and he's going to have a lot of runway here in Colorado to do it, and I'm really excited to see that fit. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be quite interesting. Uh, I got about a minute for this one. Chris McFarland, uh, to round out this roster, do you think it's more likely via trade, or do you think he's going to be pretty active in free agency? I think he's going to be active in free agency. I didn't see the Ryan Johansson move coming specifically. Um, and so I think that they are exhausting a lot of different options and looking for the best available fit. And with free agency, now that the 2C position is more or less resolved, that was where I didn't see them acquiring a player through free agency because the market for centermen was a little bit thin. There are going to be a lot of excellent wingers out in free agency for McFarland to consider that sort of where he's looking to next. And so I think he is going to be pretty active. Yeah, I think uh, I think he is as well. And it'd be interesting to see, like we talked about right off the top of this interview, uh, what he does with those first round picks. Does he use them? I know they don't have a pick after the first round until the uh, the fifth round. So maybe it is in his best interest to use both of them. But uh, Christmas McFarland certainly going to be one of the more interesting GMs. Uh, listen, Megan, thank you so much for taking some time for me today. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the draft tonight. Enjoy the rest of your time in Nashville. And, uh, and we'll chat soon. Sounds good. Thank you. There she goes, Megan Angley from DNVR Sports. Wow, there's a lot going on. We talked about um, all the the names that are still available, and now, you know, I wonder as we progress, you know, Elliot talked about it off the top of the show today. I wonder about a lot of movement in draft position. I wonder about teams trying to move up in the draft and packaging players. And I I just, I feel like there are, there is more than one blockbuster tonight. You look at the names that are available. You look at teams trying to jockey for position and and trying to get settled under the cap and, and all of that. I just wonder if there are some teams out there that are getting that itchy trigger finger and they are going to make the big splash. I'm looking at you, Nashville, the host team. I'm looking at you right now because I am expecting that Nashville and Barry Trotz are going to jump in feet first here. And I don't think they're going to think twice about it. Uh, thank you to everybody that joined me on the show today. Elliot Friedman, as he joins me off the top of every show. Ken Weeb from Sportsnet. Sam Cosentino talking about the draft. Christy Flannery on the Devils. Timo Meyer, eight years times $8.8 million. Goodbye, Jack Hughes' number. And of course, Megan Angley from DNVR Sports. That's going to do it for us on the Jeff Merrick Show. Thank you to Dylan making his return, slumming it with us. David Sis. Jen Rolnick, Matt Marchesian for Jeff Merrick the rest of the week. You've been listening on the Sportsnet Radio Network, watching on Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360.